transformation in trials. Welcome to Transformation in Trials. This is a podcast exploring all things transformational in clinical trials. Nothing is off limits on the show, and we will have guests from the whole spectrum of the clinical trials community. And we're your hosts, Ivana and Sam. Welcome to another episode of Transformation in Trials. Today in the studio with me, I have Becky Baggett, who is the Associate Vice President of Project Delivery at Roe. Welcome, Becky. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you here with me. Today, we're going to be diving into the topic of uh, operating clinical trials. Uh, and this is one of those core topics for our podcast. And I'm very excited to have you uh, here to discuss this with us. But before we really dive into it, uh, to set the stage for our audience, can you tell us more about how a clinical trial is usually managed? Yeah, certainly. And, you know, I'll I'll zoom out and do it real high level. Um, but, but, you know, the um, clinical trial space, it's a highly regulated space, as you can imagine, uh, for good reason. Um, but, you know, so at the bare bones of it, most clinical trials are run the same way. So you would um, have a pharmaceutical company and those range in size and, um, you know, pipeline depth um, in terms of how many drugs they're looking to bring to market. But um, whether they are a large size or a smaller size, they may engage with a contract research organization, um, such as the one that I work for. And um, they hire a contract research organization to sort of, you know, put boots on the ground, if you will, uh, to run these trials. And, you know, the clinical trials, the, the, the big components of them really are, you know, you have the clinical research sites where patients are going to be evaluated if they're appropriate for the trial, um, receiving the investigational medication, being carefully monitored for any safety signals, and also just you know other signals of, of efficacy. Is this drug actually working? So the contract uh, clinical research organization will provide staff who oversees those operations at the site. They'll travel to the site. They'll meet with the staff and the uh, principal investigator just to make sure everything is uh, going according to the protocol and according to the, uh, you know, the laws, the GCP that's put in place. Also, there's some folks on the back end, right? So we have data that we're collecting from all of this great information that the patients are sharing with us. And we have data managers who are putting all of that data into an aggregate form um, and, and cleaning it. And what we mean by that is we're just looking for things that, you know, perhaps it was a transcription error at the site where somebody was typing something into the system, the electronic data capture system where, it doesn't quite make sense given the other data that we're seeing um, and, and, you know, making sure that those things get corrected along the way. And then once the data has been clean, we have our uh, brilliant statisticians who, who analyze the data and provide uh, pharmaceutical companies, biotechs with what we call a readout. So here are the results of what you were trying to accomplish and where, you know, the, the data is showing you were perhaps successful or maybe places that, you know, you you weren't successful, but it gives lots of information about the medication itself and whether or not it's viable to move on for further development. Um, and then, of course, on top of all of that, you have a project manager who is sort of the hub of it all, you know, communicating with all parties, making sure that everything is 
being conducted per the timeline, per the uh, regulations, per the budget and the scope of the project. So lots of responsibility sitting on top of that with the project manager. Um, so in broad strokes, that's what um, are the major components for clinical trials. Mm, no, that makes sense. So it sounds like uh, the CROs are actually the, the experts in running the clinical trial with all these different uh, specialities that need to go, work together to make it happen. I, I would say, you know, operationally, for sure, you know, the, the pharmaceutical companies are the experts in their products, you know, mm. that there's no debate about that. But when it comes to operations, when you're working at a CRO, clinical research, uh, um, contract research organization, you have to really wear a lot of different hats. You have to learn about a lot of different therapeutic areas and the new challenges that come with those different therapeutic areas, um, which you don't always get the same exposure to that when you're working on a single product or, you know, one or two products and one or two indications. Mm. No, that makes sense. And uh, well, all the life science companies I have worked for have used CROs to run their clinical trials. So it's a, it's a very uh, common model. But I'm curious to learn uh, what are some of the challenges that can arise when you work uh, between the sponsor and a CRO? <laughs> well, we only have 30 minutes, but I'll try to <laughs> hit some of the major ones. Um, it's it's funny because I was thinking about this the other day. And honestly, it's not terribly different than maybe any other industry. A lot of, you know, what we do comes down to relationships, trust, experience, you know, and I don't see that those things are much different than other industries, but it's true. You know, there can be challenges if it's not a great fit between the uh, life science company and the CRO. So, you know, we try to do our best um, at least at our CRO to, to show the client who we really are, um, you know, so that can have that full picture in order to make sure they are selecting the right partner, the like the right collaborator, because it makes a difference. You know, you you really need to think about what type of collaborator do I want to work with? Am I in a place where I feel like I know exactly how I want everything to go? And I really just want somebody who's going to provide these resources. That's that's one type of you know, CRO, one type of culture, or, Hey, this is kind of a new space for me. And, or I don't have a ton. I'm a startup. I don't have a ton of operational experience, or I'm a very lean crew. Mm. I need somebody who is, you know, going to sort of take over and, and run with it, has the experience. Um, I get a good feeling from them. You know, that's important as well. You'd be surprised how many times it comes down to, I really, you know, connected with this, with, you know, your CRO, that, that can be the decision maker and, and it's important. But it sounds like there are also different kinds of engagement models. Uh, can uh, one CRO operate in many different kinds of models or uh, is it more about picking uh, the CRO that operates in the model that you would like to work for, work with as a sponsor? I, I would 
say for the most part, most CROs can operate in multiple different models. You know, some have larger staff, right? So if you're looking for an FSP model, which is just, you know, somebody who is going to be a resource dedicated only to your study, um, and, and it's not a team, right? You're hiring individuals. Then, you know, some of the other larger CROs might have more staff available to do that, um, or that's more of the, what their structure supports. It, it really just uh, really pays off to take the time to uh, in, interview, you know, the mm-hmm. CRO and know for yourself what you're looking for. And that will definitely help you figure out who's the best fit. Mm. That that makes sense. Uh, well, it's uh, it's uh, it sounds very common sense actually. Uh, for <laughs> how do you pick any collaborator? Well, you need to get to know them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right? It, it's not unique, I don't think, to this space. Yeah, but how are some of the ways that you've experienced uh, establishing the collaboration for success? Are there some things you can do? Is there some expectation setting you can do in advance before you get into the thick of things? Yeah, it's it's a great question. So, um, you know, I can speak for our, um, my company. What we what we really like to do is once we receive a request for a proposal, uh, we try to get a synopsis, a protocol synopsis, if we can, because that's really the meat of you know the project. And we try to take a look at that with the proposed team and determine, okay, what do we foresee as risks. Um, you know, what should we raise to this client? And, and honestly, that is happening whether they choose us or not. We mm-hmm. want them to have the information, you know, to make sure that they are aware of, of all of these risks so that when they move forward, they're, you know, they're eyes wide open, making sure that they can mitigate those risks, make plans for them. And, and that goes into all of the other processes that follow. So we develop our budgets based on, you know, what we would foresee taking the study in order to operate it, what that budget would be. Um, And then we also carry that into the bid defense when we are speaking with clients. We raise them again. We talk to them about it. Have you thought about this? You know, what is your plan for this? Um, And then once we get to that kickoff meeting, all of these conversations have already happened. Mm -hmm. So when you get to that kickoff meeting, it's much less of a formality where you're going through all of your standard operating procedures. And it's more that you can actually roll your sleeves up and get going. Um, And I feel like that setup really helps to just sort of you know, dive right in and get going a lot faster because you have done a lot of the hard work up front. Mm. That makes sense. Uh, I wonder also how, when you have to project manage a a clinical trial, uh, like you have to do when you have to operate it, uh, you also need to really understand a lot of the sub-disciplines that go into making a clinical trial successful. Mm -hmm. What is a good way to develop into being a, a clinical trial manager? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, curiosity, I would say, is <laughs> is key. I mean, um, for myself, I started in data management 
I did that for about seven years and then I moved on to clinical monitoring and then on to project management. And now I'm in this executive oversight um, role. And I, I think it really helped me shape sort of my view of the operations and certainly, you know, allows me to understand every step of the way. Um, if, you know, if you are a curious person, go for it ask questions, um, go attend seminars about things that you want to learn about. And, and hopefully you have an employer that allows you to do that. Um, I also have my regulatory affairs certification mm. and, and that was just so I could really understand like, what are these constraints that sponsors are facing when they're running their clinical trials. And that really helps me also, you know, sort of shape that view from when we are supporting them, um, you know, trying to help them meet these goals and having a basic understanding of what might be underneath all of these requests that may not seem, you know, reasonable at the time, but it allows me to, to sort of, you know, understand and, and push my team forward and help them understand it as well. Mm. I think that's the best advice I've ever heard because there are so many <laughs> tiny nuances in our space, right? And and the only way, there's no education that will enable you to take on this role. No, you're absolutely right. And it's it's just going to be that curiosity and the self-motivation. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a great advice. Um, I also would like to ask, we've talked about the collaboration with the sponsor, which is, of course, very important, but there's also collaboration with the individual sites uh, where the mm. trial runs. I'm wondering what kind of dynamics have you experienced in those collaborations? You cannot run clinical trials without sites, full stop. And so you really need to understand you know, who your sites are, who has the experience, um, who is, you know, knows these patients that you're looking to recruit. And, um, you know, the good sites will emerge and you continue those relationships with those sites. And being, you know, I, as a project manager, I always saw myself as an advocate for all. So mm. I was advocating for what the site needed. I was advocating for what the sponsors, you know, goals and desires were. And I'm advocating for my team trying to make all of that work, which can be hard sometimes, yes. but it's, it's all very important, right? So a lot of times, Sponsors don't fully understand, you know, uh, why a site is asking, you know, for for peace to their budget, and, and you just need to talk to them. They'll tell you, you know, and and I think that the sites really appreciate that when they have that advocate, they can tell that you really want to work with them. You're listening, you hear them, and you are going uh, to the sponsor with these requests to try and, and facilitate their operations um, for the study. Mm. No, that, that makes sense. And it's a, it's an interesting way that you put it, that you need to advocate for all. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think that's that's a very good point. If you that's the only way to get all these loose ends to tie together, if there's at least one person who tries to ensure that coherence. Yeah, and it's the only way it's going to work is if everybody's communicating and listening and you know trying to understand. It doesn't mean you always have to agree, but you do have to listen. Mm. That's that's so true. Um, <laughs> 
I was also thinking about the role that you have seen technology play in trial execution. Maybe also some uh, examples of where it's been used for good and maybe some examples of where it makes everything more difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is a slippery slope for sure. Um, You know, some of the studies that we work on, um, I'll give an example, right? ePro, everybody knows ePro. So many people use ePro, but there really are some cases where sponsors will come to us with these requests for um, vendors or technology that they definitely want included in their study. But then when we go and talk to the sites, they're just they're like, that is overcomplicating it. So there are some studies that we work with sites and the patients are in confinement. Um, and so, you know, the the request for EPRO when somebody's in confinement isn't necessarily a worthwhile expense, mm. right? Because the patient's right there. They're not going anywhere. They're not going to lose their diary. And if you're really yeah. only answering a few questions, one or two a day, or even more than that, it's still far more cost effective, much lower risk, maybe to use something as low tech as paper. So, Mm. you know, we really do try to look at that when when clients come in with requests for lots of different technology. Does it make sense in the context of the study design? And and the sites are a key piece to that conversation because they'll tell you this doesn't make any sense. And if we can save our sponsors money and hassle, all the better, right? We will definitely provide that feedback. And, you know, and I feel that there are also a lot of vendors out there trying to sell their greatest, you know, technology, which sounds awesome. But sometimes when you put too many of those technologies, too many of those vendors in one project, you are taking far longer to get up and running. Mm. And for what benefit in the end? So always thinking about the end in mind. What am I getting out of this? Is it worth the money and the additional time that it's likely adding? Mm. I I think that is so true because we have so many ways we can put technology together. uh, But in some cases, like removing stuff may be beneficial and just thinking about how can we get through this trial the fastest Yeah, or maybe just saving the technology, you know, for those key endpoints that you feel it would benefit the most. And maybe you don't need the other things that aren't as important in your analysis. Mm. That's a a great angle. Uh, I'm curious, does Roe focus on some specific therapeutical areas? Yes, and um, we we have recently shifted to um, focusing on uh, what we call our core four, um, and and that really it doesn't mean that we don't do studies outside of those therapeutic areas, but it really is so that we can focus and become those true experts um, in these spaces. Um, And so we focus on um, analgesia is one of our core four. We do a lot of um, psych and neuroscience. Uh, We do uh, respiratory is another one of our core four. And then um, we have dermatology and we have done um, oncology as well. Um, But those are the main areas that we focus on. Um, And it's just because, you know, we have the deepest expertise in those areas and we have a smattering of expertise in in other areas as well, but really wanting to make sure that our 
um, you know, project managers and clinical team leads and other functional areas don't feel stretched too thin. Mm-hmm. We want them to be those therapeutic area experts um, where they feel like they can make uh, educated decisions um, moving forward in projects because a lot of times you're working autonomously and that's an uncomfortable place to be if you're having to make those decisions on a therapeutic area that you really don't even know. Mm. And I think that's an important point. Expertise really makes a big difference in a therapeutic area. Um, I would I would be curious to understand if there are a lot of uh, differences or similarities when running trials in these four different areas. Oh, wow. That's a great question. That's a broad one. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll go back to my original, you know, statement about how clinical trials are run, right? So at the very basic level, there are the components that go into the clinical trial are the same and, and you're never going to get away from, you know, having to work very closely with research centers to understand where they're getting patients from. How are you going to find patients? And it's different, right, for every therapeutic area, But the process of uncovering these things is is the same. And we're running these trials generally the same. And again, it goes back to this is a very highly regulated industry. Mm. So you you do have to follow, you know, these uh, laws. And and that guides a lot of the decisions, right, that are made in in the clinical trials. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, Yeah, well, I think. We are going to start uh, edging towards the last question that we always ask our guests on the show. Uh, And that is, if we gave you the special transformation in trials, magic wand, uh, that has one wish that can change the life sciences industry, what would you wish for? (laughs) So don't judge me for my very Pollyanna answer. (laughs) But, you know... um, Honestly, if if money was not an issue, that would be my wish. I I've seen so many um, great companies right have to pull their studies because they've run out of funding, or you have to limit you know what you're doing in a study or, or what you're looking at, and and you know because of the funding, and you know obviously FDA has put some grant you know guidances and and allowances in place for rare disease, which is excellent, right? Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that all areas can be studied. And it really is so sad when you have to hear, you know, about, well, they had to prioritize one therapeutic area over another for funding purposes. And it seems to be, you know, and I'm not naive. I know that money makes the world go around, but it would be if we were able to remove that restriction. I mean, just think about the possibilities and, um, you know, how many more medicines could come to market. Oh, I think that's that's a great wish. Uh, and I do wish it comes true because there's there's way more we could do. And some of those trade-offs are really painful and we end up having uh, drugs sitting on the shelf that could benefit patients, but we just didn't have enough money to finish it. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's painful. Well, if our guests want to learn more about you, Becky, ask any follow-up questions or learn more about Roe, how can they reach out to you? Oh, certainly. Um, So you can go to our website, which is www.roeworld.com. 
Uh, you could reach out to me directly. Um, my name, Becky underscore Baggett at rowworld.com. Happy to answer any questions. Awesome. Well, this was a big pleasure to have you on the show, Becky. Thank you. It was a pleasure for me as well. You're listening to Transformation in Trials. If you have a suggestion for a guest for our show, reach out to Sam Parnell or Ivana Rosendale on LinkedIn. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or in any other player. Remember to subscribe and get the episodes hot off the editor.